Well, it's my pleasure to uh, open up God's Word again this morning to all of you, and we're going to be turning to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. So, I invite you to turn there, and I'm going to read the text that I'm going to be covering, and it's a meaty text, and it's a long text, and whenever it's this meaty and this long, I don't always know how I can predict it's going to go, but I would invite you to uh, stretch a bit this morning, not physically standing right now, but mentally, and open your minds and your hearts to what God God's Word teaches us, and I think that it will be a blessing to you. I'm trying to get my clock calibrated there. There we go. All right. Galatians 3, 15 through 26. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith could be, would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Let me pray once more. Before we dive into this, Lord, I pray for strength. I pray for uh, you to loosen my tongue, that the teaching would become preaching and effective for people's hearts here this morning. There's um, a great deal of meat and thought that goes into understanding this uh, word, but I pray it would be a word of grace to the hearers now. In Jesus' name, amen. In these verses, Paul is asking a question, and I want to simplify our morning with this question, and it appears in verse 19. He asks a few questions, but this seems to give an overarching theme to where we're tackling a lot of verses all at once. Look at verse 19. He says, why then the law? And my title is, why the law? 
Why do we have the Old Testament law as New Testament Christians? If you've studied your Bible for any period of time, you've probably come across that question in your own mind. Why do we have the Old Testament law? What good is it now for us if we are supposed to be dead to the law? If we're out of the Mosaic Old Testament age into the new covenant age, why do we need the law at all? Maybe a more broadened way to look at this question and to apply it to all of us is to ask the question in this way. Why read the Old Testament? I know Nathan's going to get up and leave right now. He's an Old Testament scholar. Why do that at all? If we're in the New Covenant, what do we need the Old Testament for at all? This isn't a modern question in the, of the 20th or 21st century. In A.D. 144, there was a man named Marcion of Sinope, which is connected to modern-day Turkey. But he was a contemporary of uh, the church father Tertullian. Tertullian took Marcion on. Marcion taught an errant teaching that spread throughout Rome and got Marcion ultimately excommunicated from the Orthodox Church of that day because his teachings led him to completely reject the Old Testament, to completely cut out the Hebrew Old Testament from the Bible. He was a dualist. He believed that the God of the Old Testament was not of the same frame of mind as the God of the New Testament. So he published his own list of New Testament books as a Bible, and he rejected and edited out some of Luke and rejected other certain New Testament phrases and even certain New Testament books. How could he do this, you might say? How could someone kind of take out a pair of scissors and just snip up God's word like that and call it good? Well, I would ask you, as I would ask myself, how much of the Old Testament do you really read at all? Do you read all of the counsel of God or do you primarily focus on the more applicable parts in the new? Do we need all of the storyline of the Bible to understand it in its entirety? Marcion, as a heretic, believed God had a split personality. For him, the Hebrew Old Testament revealed God as a wrathful, mean, judgmental, vengeful God, while the New Testament was all about grace. The Old Testament would be about law and destruction and pressure, and the New Testament is about Jesus and his loving kindness and his mercy. So God is two different people. So we'll just embrace the New Testament. We'll just embrace the gospel of grace, leaving out anything regarding the law. Does this sound familiar? Maybe I can phrase it in a different way. Again, Paul's question, why then the law? Here's a way to test it. Do you believe 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, where Paul said, all scripture is breathed out by God and all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What is the all scripture Paul is talking about? The graphe in the New Testament Greek. What is he talking about? Well, at that point, he's primarily thinking about the Old Testament Genesis to Malachi. The New Testament was being written during that time. He's saying all scripture and primarily targeting the Old Testament there. 
Paul was referring to the church profiting from all Scripture, the all Scripture that Marcion threw out. So then you say, I thought we were delivered from the law. Let's get more theologically specific. I thought we were delivered from the law by the gospel of grace. And guess what? We are. That's true. We are no longer under the law as a, like an Old Testament Israelite was. We're not in, under the law in that same way. Yet Paul said in Romans seven twelve, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. To Timothy, Paul said, now we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In the Old Testament, Israel's kings were taught to, when they became kings, write several copies of the law. In particular, a precise copy so that the law would get in their hearts so that they could lead well for God. Joshua, when he was leading in Moses' stead, was commanded to meditate on the law day and night and to do all according to that which is written, and in doing so, you will have promised success, Joshua 1.8. Generations going into the promised land, according to Deuteronomy 6, were to teach the law of God. Remember, as, as you go by the way, putting it on, on the doorposts of your house, having it like a frontal lobe in front of your mind's eye at all times, having the law of the Lord there so that you can pass it on from generation to generation to generation so that your grandchildren will have the fear of God. David's heart cry was Psalm 119, 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all of the day. So surely there is heart softening, redemptive purposes to the law, right? So if scripture gives clear testimony in this way to law, the law's benefits, how do we just throw it aside or ignore it? Yet we know that we're no longer under it. So why then the law? What do we do with the law? Well, in Christianity today, there are a couple movements that are swinging the pendulum too far one way or the other in this discussion. One pendulum swing is called the hyper-grace movement, where people are basically rejecting any command in any part of Scripture, Old Testament or New Testament. It's called the indicative-imperative debate. Indicative is just how you are in Christ, who you are in Christ. It's being in Christ. And that's all you have to worry about. You don't have to worry about any imperative or any command in Scripture whatsoever. Even a command like speak the truth in love isn't taken as a command. It's just something that you are. That's what people do there. On the other hand, you have legalistic people who fall into moralism, who harangue over the commands and say, listen, you still are under a version of the law and you need to obey even if you don't want to obey. And that's heart-crippling moralism and legalism that's the bewitching heresy that and spell that this church was under according to galatians 3 the beginning of that chapter so then why then the law this brings us to our outline and paul just basically walks through several points about the law and that's what i'm going to do this morning our first point is the law never invalidates god's promises or promise the law never annuls It never makes God's promise void, verses 15 through 18. The law never invalidates God's promise. Paul's making arguments here using logic. You could say it's holy inspired logic on fire. Paul was a master logician. He was very smart, intelligent. He used argument or philosophical argument to prove his 
points. He's arguing here from the law being the lesser thing to God's promises being the greater thing. The law is the lesser covenant, the Mosaic law, to the greater covenant, which is the Abrahamic covenant that precedes the Mosaic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is basically the gospel of the Old Testament that is fulfilled in Christ. Now, if you look at verse 15, he says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. First of all, notice Paul's tone here. He's been calling the Galatians, several churches, you bewitched, foolish people, right? It's pretty harsh. Suddenly he takes a softer tone. I appreciate Paul here, right? Hey, brothers, let me give you a human example. Brethren, you know, I love you now. Paul is basically saying to them that there were covenants made all through redemptive history, whether like a marriage covenant or a business covenant or something like Boaz who made a covenant to have Ruth and to be her kinsman redeemer or the honoring covenant of Jonathan to David where he gave him his armor, where he gave him his robe, where he gave him his sword and bow and belt, an honoring covenant where Jonathan became a subordinate to the coming king who would be King David, Second Samuel 18, 3. He's basically saying these Lesser covenants normally don't get annulled. They normally don't get undone. So why do we think that the Abrahamic promised covenant, where if you believe in God, you are reckoned as righteous, where Abraham was was promised that from his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed, that just because the Mosaic law came 430 years later, that doesn't undo the Abrahamic covenant, which is setting the golden thread of the gospel from Genesis through Revelation. It doesn't undo it. Those covenants, man's covenants, were not to be taken lightly. So Paul argues, lesser to the greater, that these covenants pale in comparison to God's promises, specifically Abraham to his offspring, verse 16. Look at verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is a complicated verse if you just read it at first glance, but if you dive into it, it becomes pretty simple. And really the key that unlocks the door to everything Paul is talking about here. Paul's emphasis here is on the Abrahamic covenant and how solid it is, solidarity. Remember, the Moses, the Mosaic covenant that was put in place at Mount Sinai was between God and the people, and it was contingent upon their obedience. It's called a bilateral covenant. If if Israel, which they promised... And they had big vats of blood thrown on them, if you want to read about that in the Old Testament, to seal their promise. They were promising everything that you say, we will do. And ultimately, we know they didn't always do the covenant. They didn't always obey. And that was a bilateral covenant. It was God and man working something out together. The Abrahamic covenant that came hundreds of years before 
was made between God and Abraham, and it was based on God staking his own honor, saying, I'm going to put Abraham to sleep, and I'm going to base this covenant on my own honor, on my, for my own name's sake. I am going to fulfill this no matter what Abraham does, no matter how sinful he gets, no matter if he lies, which he did, no matter what he does, this covenant will be fulfilled based on my own honor. This is the gospel. So this is, if you see the solidarity of the covenant, it was made to Abraham, but it was made in light of his coming offspring. Who was the offspring? Well, the scripture tells us. It wasn't offsprings. It's not made in light of the Israelites' obedience. It's not made in light like Abraham. As long as your lineage, as long as your seed always obeys, this covenant will stay in place. It wasn't like that wasn't offsprings, it was an offspring. The covenant was made to Abraham, but it was made in light of the coming offspring. That word offspring is seed. It was made in light of the coming one who is Christ. It was made to your offspring who is Christ. This is a solid, solid covenant. Kind of ties together a phrase that was found in Genesis 12, 7, which is where the Abrahamic covenant was first made. It says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Offspring, singular. And it's talking in terms of everyone who would ever be saved by Christ. It really is a picture of Jesus Christ to Abraham's offspring. It's a collective whole. Everyone that would ever be under Christ, under this seed who is Christ, will be saved. So, whether you're in the Old Covenant, whether you're under the Mosaic system, or whether you're in the new, the times of Christ when he first came, or whether you're in the church age, we are under this covenant if we've believed on Jesus Christ. We are under the seed who is Christ. That's Paul's point. He's basically harmonizing the Abrahamic covenant with Genesis 3.15, which I've talked to before. This is the first place that the gospel is mentioned. It's called the Proto-Euangelion, Genesis 3.15, where Paul is citing the idea of this. Let me read you Genesis 3.15. This is where God is talking to Satan, the serpent. He's also talking to Adam and Eve. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, who is Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. Who's the offspring of Satan? Well, everyone who's never believed is under the satanic curse of the devil, the Adamic race, the race of Adam. Anyone who would not believe, anyone who's under rebellion is under the seed race of Adam or under, as 1 John puts it, you are a son of Cain. You're just a follower of unbelievers or you are under Christ. This is the seed that came from Eve that was the promised one who would ultimately come as the fulfillment of King David, the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And all those who would believe would benefit under Christ and his race. There's really only two races. There are believers and unbelievers. There are people who are under Christ and under Cain or under Adam and then under the race of Cain, which is the language of First John. Now look down at the next verse. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make 
that to make the promise void. As strong as the Mosaic Covenant was, as meaningful as it was that God gave the law to Israel, it did not ever undo what had been given before as the promise of God. It says 430 years later, 430 years had passed between the promise that was given to Abraham as it was repeated through his sons Isaac and Jacob. That really harmonizes a 430-year gap. And then those many years later, the Mosaic Law came. But Paul's point is that that new covenant did not annul or do away with the old one. It did not make it void. Now look at verse 18. For if the inheritance comes by the law, in other words, if your salvation and your promised salvation in the future comes by your obedience to the law, it no longer comes by a promise, it comes by a bilateral covenant of obedience or not. This is all important. You'll see how this is all building towards the end, but it's important for you to get this down. It no longer comes by a promise if you're trusting in your works, your obedience, your righteousness. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. The gospel is based on promise. The promise of Abraham, the promise of the gospel. The gospel is a promise. The gospel is something that you inherit, you do not earn. That's what Paul is doing. Again, Paul is using redemptive history to get people to be unlocked or unshackled or unchained by believing that their obedience is either keeping them inside or putting them outside of God's favor. So many people do that. You say, how could people believe in a gospel like that? And yet, just ask yourself, if you've, asked your, if you've said to yourself recently, man, I've not met with the Lord in a long time. I wonder if God's blessing is on me at all anymore. Or I've not given enough in the offering, and I wonder if God's blessing is on me anymore. I wonder if I've sinned so badly that now I am outside of the family of God, and I don't know if I can be back inside the family of God. I've outdone the gospel. I've undone the gospel. If you think that way, you're not thinking like the language of Paul. So, again, why then the law? Look at, look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Let's stop there. Why then the law? Paul's answer to why the law was given is simple. He just says it right here. Because of transgressions or because of sins god gave the law because sin was happening sin was happening in the world he gave the law because of sins this can mean several things number one the law was given to reveal god's holiness and it is if you look at the ten commandments every one of the commandments reflects an attribute of god god's holiness god's worthiness god's glory god is the god of truth, not lying, the God of righteousness, not stealing, the God of holiness, not adultery. God is the, the chief and, and the chief person and being of our worship. We should not have false gods. We should not covet things. The law of God reflects God's holy character. Secondly, the standard is to identify how sinful we really are. You can measure yourself according to the law of God now. We who are made, all of us who are made in the image of God have a conscience, but to the Jews, Romans talks about they were given the oracles of God so that they could know that they were in sin and they were violating God's standards. 
Romans teaches us that the law was given to curb this sin influence. And then fourthly, the law warns believers of the consequences of disobedience. If you read the Old Testament law, you'll see, you'll see it. If you touch this, if you do this, if you, if you act in this way, consequences are waiting for you. And some of that even applies today in terms of just practical knowledge to say, yeah, if you do that, if you walk that path, that is something that's going to bring great harm to you. Number five, to give God's people a way to deal with their sins. In the Old Testament economy, they were sacrificing rams and lambs all over the place like a slaughterhouse because their sins required atonement. An ultimate atonement we know as we look at the big picture of Scripture could only come from Christ, the perfect sacrificial lamb. But the Old Testament believer was believing what the law told them to do in light of a coming Messiah, which is a means of atonement from the Old Testament sense. All of this is true, but I want to introduce what I think Paul's emphasis is here. And it's a unique one. It's one perhaps that will surprise you. Here the law was given to increase sin. To increase sin. The language here was added because of transgressions. It was added to multiply the transgressions. You could take it in that way. And a parallel verse would be Romans 5.20 where Paul's making the same point in the book of Romans. You can look there. It says, now the law came to increase the trespass. What's going on here? Both in Romans and Galatians, Paul takes massive handfuls of the redemption story to make his point. Let me just read to you Romans 5, 17 and following just to give you a big picture of what's going on. He says, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned, that's Adam, through one man, that was Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, of the first Adam, second Adam. Massive redemption story handfuls. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Don't eat the forbidden fruit. They did. Death to them, death to humanity. It's spreading. Oh, but the second Adam comes. Christ dies on the cross. People can be saved. There's justification that's given. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. All this is lead into verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. To increase it. And I'll explain that in a minute. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So you have this uncapping, this, this unveiling of the sinfulness of sin that is beginning to multiply and run its course out loud to a point where then Christ comes as the great rescuer and gives the grace of the gospel. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what's Paul's point? Why does our sin need to be exacerbated or increased before it can be dealt with? Well, sin is like a disease. Sin is like a disease that is lying dormant inside of you. Some of you may have a disease that's lying dormant inside of you right now. God help us, right? But we know that. I mean, there are even reality shows about that, about viruses or things that are eating away at you on a microscopic level that are scary. But sin is scarier. Sin has eternal consequences, and it lies deep within us because we are born sinners. 
And frankly, we do not know how sinful we really are. It's very difficult for us to face our sinfulness. The law is a mirror that reflects our sin back to us. And that's my point here. It can suddenly come out without warning and strike us. Almost a mortal blow. I I knew a veteran from Vietnam when I was in Little Rock who had been exposed to Agent Orange, that nerve gas. And he had gone blind because of it. And he was a very delightful guy. I used to spend some time with him. We'd ride around town in Little Rock. And because he was, could see before he went to Vietnam and grew up there, he knew by just the motion of the car and the speed where we were going, everything that was everywhere around where we would drive around. He would tell me, oh, we're passing this school or this church or this tree or whatever. He was an incredible guy, incredible believer. But one time to my shock and horror i was asked to go to a hospital visit with another pastor to visit this man who was out of his head the nerve gas that had struck him blind had become worse in his body and was damaging him where he was convulsing on the bed and writhing around in pain and working through the effects of what he had been exposed to sin is like that Ultimately, he did come out of that hospital room, and he died um, later. But it was horrible to see. Sins like this, we're exposed to it. But we, without the law, we are not exposed to sin's full offense. We don't know how sinful we really are. And frankly, Israel, by gaining access to the law and trying to obey it through their own morality... God's point was to show them that they could not keep the law. And the more that they tried to keep the law in their own strength, the worse they became. The law, in one sense, was hardening the hearts of the Israelites as they attempted to obey it. And they would become more immoral and more greedy and more idolatrous and more worldly by trying to obey the law in the flesh. The law increases sin. This is the war that we face in our own lives when we try to obey the commands of Scripture, whether Old Testament or New Testament, in our own flesh, right? The more that we try to obey the Word of God by our own flesh or by our own force of will, the more sin that we see, the more frustrated we become, the more promises that we try to make to God in terms of how good we're going to be now, the more hurtful and harmful and guilt-stricken we become and often hardened because we see our sins spilling out in front of us. So many people who are unbelievers are confused by this dynamic. They don't understand their own sin. They're blind to what's really inside of them because they're not even exposed to the law of God that says, oh, what you're doing now touches on the nerve of God and God's judgment is against you and you're, you're hurting and you're trying to anesthetize your, your own conscience. You're trying to put it to sleep. You're trying to get away from your own guilt and they have no idea what is really happening inside of them and so they try to laugh it off. But the old adage comes to mind, we have to first get people lost with the word of God before they can see their need for Christ and be saved. They need to see themselves in light of scripture. This was Paul's testimony, who was a righteous Pharisee, right? It says Romans 7, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. 
But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall I say? What then shall I say? What? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Look at this in verse 8 of Romans 7. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, here it is, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. It's just, you see it all over the place. Oh my goodness. I'm trying not to do this. I'm doing it all the more. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Once I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. You're crushed under it. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. You become hopeless. You become stripped bare by the law. There is no hope within yourself at that point based upon what the law says to you about yourself and does to you in light of yourself. It is not your escape hatch. It is not your ladder to climb. It is a pole that says climb me and then when you start to try to climb it, it's greased and you just slip down and down and down and down by trying to get to God through it. Verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of our transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Ultimately, the promise was made to Abraham, but it was ultimately made in light of Christ. So the promise is of Christ. The seed who would come and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now this verse kind of breaks up into part one and part two. First of all, in Verse 19, he's talking about the law. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Then he goes on a sidebar and he says it was to exacerbate our transgressions, to reveal how bad we are so we would fall upon Christ, who is the offspring, who came according to the promise. But then Paul, at the end of verse 19, goes back to talking about the law. The it here is the law. He says, and it, the law, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. In other words, there's a contrast going on. In Christ, there's one promise. The gospel's real simple. A child can understand it. Fall on Christ. He is your salvation. He is your solution. He's it. That's the one solid covenant. But by contrast, there was a covenant made that was put in place. This was the Mosaic covenant through angels. Through angels meaning at Mount Sinai, even though in the Old Testament it's not mentioned there. In Deuteronomy 5 or Exodus 20, but in Acts 7.53 and Hebrew 2 for Hebrews 2 for you uh, Bible scholars, Acts 7.53 and Hebrews 2, there were angels there. When thunder and lightning was happening and the Mosaic Covenant was being written by the finger of God and given in, in the Ten Commandments, angels were there. They were there as an intermediary, which exposes the fact that this was, again, God and people covenant. This was God saying, if you obey, I will bless you. If you disobey, you are under God's curse. That is a lesser covenant to the Abrahamic covenant. You might say, Jeff, you are repeating yourself as a preacher this morning. No, I'm not. I'm just doing what Paul's doing. He's repeating himself, so I'm repeating myself. All right, there we go. It's Paul's fault. 
This again points to the Mosaic Covenant. It's lesser. God is one. Look at that in verse 19 or verse 20. Now an intermediary implies more than one, which is God and the Israelites, but God is one. The Abrahamic Covenant was made to Abraham in light of Christ. It was made to Christ, the seed who would come. This is our gospel. Our gospel is not pass or fail. Once you were saved, you can't fail out of your grade. You're there. You're going to receive the inheritance. You're going to line up. I don't know how the, the reward system is going to work out. I just want to get in, right? It's not based on our obedience. It's based on the grace of the gospel and the promised inheritance therein. Number three, the law drives people to faith in Christ. Verses 21 through 22. Let me read that again. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Stop there. Verse 21. There's continuity between the first promise, the Abrahamic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant. They do work together. The promise is signed, sealed, and delivered, but yet the Mosaic law was given so that people would see their sin and then fall upon the promise of faith in God. Not try to earn their way to heaven, but see that they couldn't do it so that they would rely on the grace of the gospel. For the Old Testament saint, would it be looking at the Abrahamic covenant and looking forward to a future Messiah? So he says, certainly not. Paul's driving the point home. He's stating, he's restating the obvious. You can't get into heaven through law keeping. The law cannot give life. It cannot make you righteous. You can't, in light of Galatians 3, join the church by circumcision, by ceremonial law, become a Jew first so that you can become a Christian and get in the Christian club. No, that's not the way of faith. This is whoever you are, which is skipping to next week's sermon, whether you are Jew or Greek, verse 28, slave or free, male or female, for you're all one in Jesus Christ. The point isn't to conform to some human standard, but to be in Christ, because the law was never meant to give life. For if a law that had been given could give life, verse 21, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. It's just not, it doesn't happen that way. Verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Establishing this, basically now Paul is saying, look, the Mosaic law, though it doesn't save you, it did play a a very important purpose. It imprisoned, it imprisoned everything under sin. That That means every human that's ever been born except Christ has been imprisoned in their sin. And the law shows you that you are imprisoned in your sin. Who has the testimony like me where you became a Christian and you became very happy at first because you were released from the guilt of your sin, but then you were illuminated to read the scripture with more meaning in your life and then you begin to see how sinful you really are before a holy God and a tremendous amount of guilt begin to form around you like a cage where you're like a caged animal behind bars saying, how can I be free and happy like I was when I was first saved? 
I know, I'm the only one, right? Galatians is meant to uncage you to see that you've been changed on a heart level and that you can't perform your way into being happy. That's Galatians. One author put it this way. He said, the law is like the cage where you have a lion who wants to eat you. And the lion wants to eat you. And then he's put in the cage. And so now he can't eat you because of the cage. He's caged in. But he still wants to eat you because his heart hasn't changed. I have two dogs in my life now. We sent one daughter away to Southern California, and that meant we gained two dogs. I don't understand the crotch economy, how this all works. But we have a couple giant cages. And these dogs, uh, sometimes they like living in the cage. We put them in there together, and they're caged. But when I come down at 5.30 or 6 or 7 in the morning, suddenly their appetite becomes inflamed and they feel like they're going to die if they do not eat and so they bark and scream and howl and all of that and then they run me over out to the back door to eat their food that I give them a little bit of kibble but you know the idea is that the cage doesn't change what's going on inside of them it can contain a person like the law being the cage it can contain a person for a while but it does not transform the heart it's like laws around the office like you know laws that curb sexual harassment or something in the office they provide a means to warn or curb external behavior but that does not change the heart it imprisons a person it breaks a person it strips a person down until they feel the full weight of it and their only means of escape is to have the door opened they're not going to get through the bars they can't change what's going on inside them someone has to come from the outside and open the door so that you can be set free luther put it this way Therefore, God must have a mighty hammer, this is the law, to crush the rocks and a fire burning in the midst of heaven to overthrow the mountains. That is to crush that stubborn, perverse beast presumption. When a man has been brought to nothing by this pounding, he despairs of his own powers, righteousness, and works and trembles before God. He will then in his terror begin to thirst for mercy and the forgiveness of sins. The law brings us to the end of ourselves. The law breaks us down so that grace can come in. This is verse 22. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We don't even see the promise until we're broken down. Whether we are ignorant of the law as an unbeliever we don't care about the law as an unbeliever we don't believe we've broken the laws of god as an unbeliever or whether as a believer we see the laws as something that we're trying to perform and trying to make ourselves right with god trying to keep ourselves in good standing with god or if we're in a category where we go as an as a believer i don't care about obedience at all and so i don't need to obey god in any sense even under the law of christ i have no sense of of loyalty to god to obey him Whatever the case may be, legalism's spell is broken by understanding that the law does have a purpose, and that is to break us down and show us that all we have, as we sing sometimes, all I have is Christ, right? To come to the end of ourselves. This church needed to 
hear this, to have legalism spell broken again, not by works, but grace. Last point, number four. The law served a redemptive purpose, verses 23 through 26. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. Now, same language here, imprisoned, held captive, we're under the law. But this time, Paul is speaking about being under the law in terms of a testimony. He's, he's brought us all through the theology of the purpose of the law, how we are brought to breaking points before we see Christ. And now his tone is even lightening up a little bit more where he's saying, you were held captive, you were imprisoned, and now you found Christ. That's the testimony. Until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The word guardian here is a word that's been translated tutor, like a mentor. It's like a live-in mentor who's a paid servant or perhaps a household slave of the day who would care for children, who would bring them along, who would teach them school, who would provide for their needs, like a nanny or a babysitter. This is what the law is likened to. It wasn't powerful to save But it was a stopgap measure because of our sins to show us our need for grace. In this sense, Paul is now saying it's a guardian. It's helping believers in the meantime to be able to come to the end of themselves so that they could find grace. It's basically suppressing our sins so that we can be held down until God could save us. In one sense, this is talking about Israel's testimony and the testimony of the church, that the law came in redemptive history. After the fall, the law came as a means of grace, as a means of showing God's character, as a means of showing how to be right with God through the ceremonial system, and also as a means to show as a mirror how sinful Israel really was and even to provoke those sins out to put them on display to increase the transgressions so that then Christ could come and solve this problem by the grace of God. In your personal testimony, it's probably something similar where before you truly came to faith in Christ, before Christ became everything to you, you felt the pressure and the weight of the law on your life. How will my conscience be cured? I'm beginning to see my sin as something that is hopeless. The guilt is beginning to wear me down and waste me away until I can find Christ. And Paul is telling this testimony in light of justification, verse 24, where all of this pressure, all of this imprisonment, all of this being held captive is leading up to when the grace of the gospel comes into your life. Let me say it to you in a parable, a parable that may or may not be true. You, you decide. There were three boys, and these boys um, were playing together in a neighborhood, perhaps. Two of them were brothers, and one was a neighbor boy. Two of them began to fight, the younger brother and this neighbor boy began to fight and punch it out. The other, a little bit larger, a little bit stronger boy, instead of fighting, chose to take a different measure. He, like the law, began to sit on top of the boy that was 
beating up the younger boy, hitting him in the face. The older brother decided to sit on his legs and hold him down. So instead of fighting, he just laid on the person and creating a great measure of pressure and suppression on that boy's body until the mother could come. And when the mother came, there was grace. There was, there was help. There was the ruckus coming to an end and it all worked out. And ultimately, whether you believe this is a true parable or not, um, there was great redemption that came from it and hearts were put back together. The law in the same way is like a guardian. It guards us until Christ could come. It suppresses sin. It warns us of wrongdoing. It puts pressure on us because of guilt. It strips us bare until we see that we need the justification of the gospel. You're only justified, in other words, when you believe that you can't save yourself when all there is is Christ. Listen, this is true for your salvation, but this is very important for you to apply for your sanctification. You do need to obey the gospel, but you need to obey it in light of the fact that you cannot save yourself by your obedience. You have to continue to rewire that because of your own flesh. You have to continue to say, I'm preaching the gospel to myself every day. I can't save myself. I can't keep myself saved. I will obey because I love Christ because he's melted me by the gospel again and again and again. Verse 26 brings things full circle. It says, verse 25, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Sons of God. This is the family language of the gospel. This is like the Abrahamic covenant. All of the families of the earth will be blessed. You as Christians are sons of God. You're not under the law as law keepers. You obey because of love. You obey because of faith. Because you are a son of God. Puritan John Bunyan wrote a poem capturing the difference between the law and the gospel. He's the one who wrote the Pilgrim's Progress. He says, run, John, run. The law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings.